Okay. Um, first off, my name is Laura, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm a bulimic. Hi, Laura. Hi. And um, here are my pictures. Brought a nice stack of them for you, but I have to tell you that the front picture, um, I was sucking in my cheeks. So just to start, to let you know that as you go through them. Just to qualify real quickly, because we like to qualify in OA. Um, I came into OA on January 2nd. 2001, and at that time, I weighed about 230 pounds. My top weight in my life, however, has been about 250 pounds, so I consider myself a sensory person. I um, got absent at my first meeting, and I've remained abstinent imperfectly. I can only stress I've been imperfectly abstinent. Um, I'm a bulimic, um, and I think that with my compulsive overeating, I just really was predisposed for disaster when it came to food. But um, just to talk a little bit about how do I qualify myself now, yes, I'm an overeater and I'm a bulimic. But I think the most important thing in terms of me to say I've been abstinent now for uh, two years, four and a half months. No, two years, five and a half months. And I've maintained a 60-pound weight loss for over two years. And... What has enabled me to maintain that weight loss has been a variety of things, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's how I qualify now, which is I'm an addict. I'm just an addict, and my drug of choice is food. But my addiction flows into every single area of my life, because if it's not the food, then it's the credit cards. If it's not the credit cards, it's unavailable men. If it's not unavailable men, it's purchasing or high-risk sports or jumping out of airplanes. So my addictive force and energy um, will first go to food, but now that I've stopped using the food in that way, it's flowed into a lot of areas of my life over the last two and a half years. I had no idea that it would. But um, I'm an addict, and I'm living in recovery. And I want to talk about the reading because it's very relevant, but just to give you a little bit of backdrop. Um, I came into OA on January 2nd, 2001. Because after about, I was 31 at the time, and um, I'm 34 now, almost 35. Um, wow. Um, about 25 years of compulsive overeating had really taken its toll on me. And uh, the pain and the suffering associated with that, plus the bulimia, um, I was suicidal. When I, on December 31st, 2000, I was suicidal. I made a suicidal pact with myself. I remember the fireworks are going off in San Francisco. I'm drinking champagne with my brother and his wife, and I'm thinking to myself, if I don't get help this year, I will kill myself because I can't go on feeling the way I feel anymore. And how I felt at the time, it's horrible. Um, absolutely horrible. I, I was the fat girl. I felt useless. I felt that I didn't deserve to be out in the world. And um, I really had no hope, and I didn't want to go on. If meant living meant another day of the pain and the agony and the crazy-making in my head, the tapes that played in my head, I'm not, I'm not worthy, it's my fault, I'm not good enough. If I eat, then I'll feel better, but then I isolate. And, you know, if I had to live one more day like that, I just couldn't, quite frankly, imagine that. Um, so I was at the end of the block. I had nowhere else to go. I tried everything possible, um, and none of it worked. So I went to my first meeting, and I really identify with the, the reading today that was shared from Ford today because that really describes what it was like um, in the dark days, as I call it. Um, I used to think that I was not worthy or that I counted, and that taking care of everyone and everything else was the priority, and I was not even on the list. 
Um, and then over the last two and a half years, you know, and I'll describe what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, I've learned to love and treat myself um, as someone that I love and respect, which I never knew that. I never knew to do that until I came into OA. Um, and before OA, I had about four emotions. My whole span emotionally was anger, fear, guilt, and shame. That was about it. You know, and my life was very schizophrenic. I had the external person and I had the internal person. The external person had the education, had the career, had the possessions, um, had humor, could fill up a room and engage everyone so that no one had to notice that I was, you know, 250 pounds. So externally, I looked like I had my shit together, except I was 250 pounds. But internally, I was absolutely empty. You know, when the door would shut and I was with my food, um, I felt like the biggest fraud because I was empty and I was sad and I was hopeless and I was emotionally, spiritually bankrupt. So I had a mask. I had my on switch, which was my external face when I was around anyone else. And then I had the real life, which was completely empty and sad and dark and, and, and isolating. Um, all right. <laughs> what my life was like before OA, um, I like to talk about Friday nights. You know, I'd work like my ass off all week, would barely eat or eat too much. And then Friday night, I hated Friday nights. I typically try and work till 10 o'clock on Friday nights because I hated what that meant, which meant that I had two and a half days by myself. You know, I'd go to my apartment, and once the door shut, I was afraid because I knew that my most significant relationship in my life was with the delivery people. And I would shut my door, and I would turn off my lights, and I would eat straight for three days. And I live in San Francisco, and I live a block from the most beautiful view in the world, in my opinion, which is Fort Mason, which overlooks the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and if you actually crane your neck out my bay window, you can actually see the Golden, not the Golden Gate Bridge, but the water and the palm trees. And um, I lived in that apartment for three years. And every Friday night, I'd have my lights off because I wanted to know I was home alone on Friday night. Um, and I'd have an extra large pizza in front of me. And I'd be, after I'd gotten myself drunk enough on the pizza, I'd sit in my bay window, and I would hear the couples underneath my bay window, because I live on the first floor, walking to the park to go by the water. And they'd be in the world. You know, they were laughing. They were either kissing goodnight, or they were jogging, you know. And the part in the reading where it says, all I knew was how I felt and how everyone else looked. You know, I was 250 pounds sitting in my bay window in the dark, eating alone, watching everyone else's lives walk underneath my window. And I didn't know how at all to be part of that world. All I knew was food and um, hatred, self-hatred and self-destructiveness. And I think at that point before OA, I really didn't think that I deserved to be in the sun, walking in the park, because there's women like size two jogging by, and they got this tight little ass, and, you know, the big beefy men, and then, like, Oh, uh, what would kill me, you know, because, you know, the clock is ticking now, would be the young couple with a baby stroller going by. And I just was like, I'm not even, my, my textbook isn't balanced. I'm 250 pounds. I'm not even dating. No way I'm getting a baby. And um, it, all I knew was that I felt so bad, and everyone else looked like they had their shit together. Like, they had been in school the day where they told you how to deal with life, and I was in the bathroom or something, you know. And, like, I felt like I didn't have some basic instructions on how to be in the world. Um, so what happened... What it was like, what happened was like now, really, what it was like was just self-hatred um, and self-destructiveness. What happened was about self-preservation, saving my life, because I knew I had nowhere else to go, and I had no other way out. And then what it's like now is self-love. And it's taking me a long time to learn to love myself. 
but, you know, what it was like, self-blame, self-destructiveness, I just, I'm, quite frankly, I'm impressed with myself now that I look back on it. You know, my ability to be mean to myself, my ability to think that I wasn't enough, I didn't do enough, I didn't have enough. But everything was my fault. You know, I thought the world revolved around me. I was superwoman. I controlled the world, you know. But it was such an extraordinarily great way to overachieve beating myself up all the time. If I should have, I could have, I would have. And, of course, that always led to picking up the bag of Doritos or picking up the food and, you know, two value meals from Burger King. You know, the should have, would have, could have, wish I had, why didn't I, always became it's my fault, I'm not good enough, I ate, I was in the dark. I felt guilty, I felt ashamed, so I ate to numb those feelings. And it was a very powerful, very powerful cycle and spiral. And it just got worse over the years. And, and I think about food, and, um, you know, food was like always my co-pilot, you know, but it was like my fatal co-pilot because we always crashed. You know, whenever I shut the door and I opened the food up, we always had a crash landing. It was never like a soft landing, you know. You know, control tower never said great landing, you know. I was always alone in the dark, drunk, or waking up after being hungover with food. So that was my life. You know, I did all the basic humiliating things that great compulsive readers do, you know, besides the damage I did physically with my bulimia and having maybe only half my natural teeth left after several thousands of dollars of reconstructive work. And my dentist now has a very nice boat, you know, with my name that should be christened on it. Um, you know, I did the thing like, you know, the knives in my throat so I can throw up. And I did all the stuff that people do as a compulsive reader and a bulimic. Um, you know, I picked food off hotel floors at 2 in the morning I used to be a traveling sales rep because room service was closed and I was hungry and I needed a fix. Um, I did a lot of humiliating things to myself um, because the larger I got, the smaller my world became. And the smaller my world became, the more desperate I was craving for, for love, for intimacy. Um, and what I didn't realize then that I know now is that I had this huge, like, bottomless void inside me that I tried to fill up with food. I tried to fill up with money or with accomplishments that were so fleeting, you know? Like, we'd ring the bell at work if something great happened, then they'd go home to their families and their lives, and I'd be sitting there alone in the office, you know? And after a while, that bell ringing didn't work anymore to fill me, so I tried to fill myself up with men. And I have a great expertise in choosing the most unavailable man in a room. Um, but that's dad issues, so we'll get to that later in the share. Um, but that was my life, you know? I. The lonelier I got, the smaller my world became, the more masterful the liar I became because I was seeking intimacy. I was seeking touch. I was 250 pounds. I was a woman. I wanted to be held. I wanted to be loved. You know, so I cruised the Internet, you know, but I would forget to mention to them what I look like and how I really live my life. I lied. Yeah, I like to bike across the Golden Gate Bridge. I've never biked across anything in my life, you know, and... I would start these relationships long distance, and I would not tell them who I really was or what I looked like, and I'd fly across the country and meet them at the end of the gate, you know, at Kennedy or JFK in New York. And, you know, the most humiliating thing was at one time a man said, you lied to me. Go home. And he just walked out of the gate. I was the woman at the end of the gate, the fat girl. And, um, you know, so I've gone to great lengths. My disease has gone to great lengths to support my, my goal of, of self-destructing. You know, whether it be with food or with money or with men, it didn't matter. You know, my addiction, the energy and the force behind that is still as strong today as it was two and a half years ago, but it gets more and more clever over time. It just goes into other areas. Um, so that's what it was like, self-destructiveness, self-hatred. Um, what happened, you all know about the New Year's Eve, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
I tried to check myself into an inpatient clinic, but, you know, it was January 1st and no one was open. So I had to cruise the Internet for other options, and I linked on to OA, and there was a meeting on Tuesday night on January 2nd, and I went to it. And, um, and what I learned was that um, I had a disease. Because I just thought I didn't know how to make good food choices, you know. Like everyone else had salads, and I'd end up eating, you know, a tub of popcorn. You know, other people would have a burger, and I would eat pounds of sugar. Like I just didn't know that what I was doing in the world was a disease. I just thought I didn't have self-control, or I made bad choices, or I had a sweet tooth, or I liked salty things. I didn't realize that there was a force greater than me that was driving my behavior. So I came into these rooms, and my first meeting, I just cried the whole time. And I like to be this, like, strong, tough, got-my-shit-together woman, you know. And I just sat there and cried because I realized that what was wrong, you know. The feeling that I never could name inside me that always made me feel less than or different, I was in a room of other people that shared the same thing. For the first time in my life, my disease had a name. It was addiction. And my addictive substance of choice was food. And I had a room of, like, 50 people that knew what I did alone with food, and they laughed, or they nodded their head, and they knew what tapes played in my head. And we didn't have to even acknowledge that to one another. We just looked at each other. And we knew. You know, like, oh, girlfriend, <laughs> I've been to war, too. <laughs> you know, I, I know where you're coming from. And um, so what happened, and I talk about self-preservation when it comes to what happened, because I was at the point of killing myself. And my family knows that, and it caused them a great deal of pain. But that's just being honest. I, I couldn't take it anymore. So I come to OA. I learn that I have a disease. Another thing I learned, thinking that I was superwoman, which my sponsor likes to joke and laugh about, is I learned that I was not unique because I thought I was special. I thought I was the smartest, most addicted, most damaged person. You know, when I would share, I wanted to make sure everyone in the room knew the worst things I did to myself because I was special, you know. And, um, and I also had this attitude when I first came in, like, this corny godship. There's no way. The word miracle is never coming out of my mouth. You know, I'm a together woman. And uh, God thing, holding hands, this is ridiculous, you know. And um, so I try and socialize with people during meetings. Like, I, And my sponsor said, just shut up and sit your ass down in a chair and quit acting like this is a networking event. You know, you are sick. And listen to get some help. And I have to tell you that... Um, the five most important things that have enabled me, number one, to survive and to live, because I really believe this is a disease that is always progressing and it is and still remains fatal in my life for the rest of my life. There are five things that have enabled me to live and to actually have physical recovery and emotional recovery and, and spiritual recovery. You know, and the first and foremost thing is willingness. You know, what happened is I was willing because I had nowhere else to go because this isn't a program for people who need it. It's bullshit. It's people who want it because there's a lot of work that comes with sobriety, emotional sobriety, physical sobriety, and spiritual sobriety. I was willing. I wanted to get better because I couldn't get any worse. I wanted to get better, and I was desperate enough that I did what I was told because my way hadn't worked. And all the games I played, and all the great gym equipment I bought, or all the memberships I never used, you know, everything I could spend, fantasize about, None of it worked. Um, so the first most important thing in my life today is willingness. I'm willing to get better. I want to get better. You know, the second thing is honesty. And I'm like the master, master liar. You know, and um, I didn't learn that I was dishonest until I got a sponsor. You know, I... Sorry, Mr. Recording. 
um, honesty. I was the queen of lying to myself, you know, and the queen of fooling myself. And I didn't realize that lying is not necessarily telling an untruth. It's about forgetting to tell my sponsor I'm having an affair with someone for four months until they show up on my horse step, you know. Like, lying and being dishonest is about omission. And I omit a lot of things to myself. I have what I call the Tupperware organizer in my head. You know, bad thought goes in the Tupperware box, I seal it up, and I deny that it exists, or I admit that fact from my life. You know, when I had a sponsor, I'm doing step work. Um, the honesty required for me to stay abstinent is incredible. Um, and I'm still not perfect on that either. And my sponsor wanted to make sure that I mentioned that today, but I still lie to her sometimes today too. Um, so number one is willingness, number two is honesty, but number three is, you know, quite frankly, when I really think about it, it's the relationship I have with my sponsor. And, um, you know, this program is about God, and this program works. But for me, I didn't know how to work a program of recovery. I, I felt like I'd landed in Russia. I didn't know a word of Russian. I was supposed to be suddenly efficient and show up for my life sober, and I didn't know what that meant. So my sponsor is the most significant relationship in my life. It's the most intimate relationship in my life. You know, I'm a 34-year-old woman, and there's no one on the planet, not my mother, you know, not my father, not anyone, not any lover, boyfriend, no best friend, girlfriend. No one knows me like my sponsor because I've never told the whole story to anyone like my sponsor. And the reason that this relationship is so significant is because one of the horrible things that I think it's alluded to in here is that all I knew is how I felt and everyone else looked. You know, I always thought that if I told the truth to someone about how I really felt about myself and what I was really doing with food and what I was really doing to my body and what I was really thinking, um, that they, and, and I felt like a monster. And I felt like if I actually verbalized that to someone, they would run out of the room. And my sponsor heard my whole fourth step, nodded appropriately, you know, and she didn't run out of the room. And she had a lot of compassion for me. So my sponsor has saved my life. Um, she is a channel for my higher power who wanted me to live, you know, and there's so many things that she's taught me. You know, the first is, the great thing about her is that she has a very low tolerance for drama and, um, and that she really suggests that I live in the solution. And these are the two most fundamental things that changed my life when I first came into recovery. Um, because I was a woman who loved drama. I loved that he said, and then I said, and then I felt, and then I whipped myself up into a frenzy, and I had to eat to get some relief. You know, so when I started playing that game with my sponsor, she, the thing that she said to me one day, which pissed me off beyond belief, but it changed my life, was she said, Laura, without the drama, please, could you just cut out the drama? And you could have heard, like, a pin drop, because I was, like, so offended. Like, how dare she not let me go into my drama? Well, my drama represented how I felt about myself. And um, the second thing, which was very critical, is that I used to always like to cut myself down. I'd make jokes about myself. I'd talk about how I wasn't enough or I should have. And, you know, there are only 24 hours in a day. Why can't I get 40 hours of work done in 24 hours, you know? And I really beat myself up a lot. I was the queen of beating myself up a lot. You know, and one day she said to me, Laura, you know, who's the one person in your life that you love that's, like, innocent and precious and you'd never want to harm? You know, and I said, well, that's my nephew Griffin. And she said, so would you talk to Griffin that way? And I said, never. She said, so why do you talk to yourself that way? You know, and I'd never, switch had never gone on like that before. You know, why do I treat myself differently than I treat other people? And that really led to a lot of growth for me in terms of what happened. Yes, I came in, I remained abstinent, consistently abstinent now for almost two and a half years, and I worked the steps. But what also happened was the way I treated myself. 
And it's hard to stay abstinent and treat yourself badly. You just don't get the same, you know, high out of it. You know, it's hard to treat yourself poorly when you're working on a program of recovery. Um, so what I know, and then I'll lead into, you know, what it's like now is um, one of the most healing things that enabled me to learn to treat myself with respect and dignity. And I think that's one of the most important things is I didn't have any dignity before. Um, you know, not slurping mayonnaise off my face after eating, you know, a double whopper while I'm driving 80 miles an hour. There's no real dignity in that or eating off the floor of a hotel or, you know, having to engage in Internet sex because I can't get anyone to look at me in person. You know, there's no real dignity in that. But where I learned to have dignity um, was the fact that, you know, I finally accepted that I had a disease. I didn't have a food problem and a weight problem. Um, or a motivation problem, or willpower, deficit. You know, I have a disease, and I take that really seriously, and that's what I hold on to so I can stay abstinent. I have a disease, and my disease is addiction. And I didn't catch this, you know. I didn't cause it. And it's not my fault. You know, and that was like the most forgiving thing I could do for myself, was it's not my fault that I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. You know. And the other thing about this is that it's never going to go away. I'm always going to be a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. And I could finally say these things out loud. I have a disease. I didn't cause it. It's not my fault. But it's permanent. And this disease I have is progressive and fatal. And with all of that said, you know, this is my bag to carry around in life. Um, yes, it's not my fault. But it's absolutely my responsibility to work a program of recovery. It's my responsibility to take my medicine. And my medicine is calling my sponsor every day for two and a half years and committing my food plan by 8.15 in the morning. It's going to meetings. It's giving myself access to abstinent food. It's reading literature. I mean, I'm talking all the tools are in my life and used in my life on a daily basis. So I look at my disease as no different than diabetes or cancer, which is treat it in a way that you can learn to live with it. I look at my disease as something that I have, that I have medicine and a treatment for, that if I do it, if I take my medicine every day, I get to live. And that's really the truth, because either I'm waking up in the morning and I'm working a program and I'm living, or I'm waking up in the morning and I'm eating and I'm dying. Because eating has taken me to suicide. Suicidal places many times in my life, but the worst was two and a half years ago. So, you know, Accepting that it's not my fault, but I have a huge part in taking my medicine has been helpful. Um, other key things, obviously my sponsor, um, but my higher power. You know, I was not the girl in the room that wanted to talk about God. God was not mine, you know. Didn't want to talk about goddess, didn't want to talk about Elvis, didn't want to talk about any of that, you know. I was the woman who took care of it all myself. You know, God, give me parking space, but in terms of work and love, I'll take those big items, thank you. You know, like I didn't want to believe that a higher power was intervening on my behalf. But all I can tell you is that when you look at the pictures that I've shared, you know, and how I feel about myself today, I can't deny the existence of a higher power that's working in my life. Because what my life is like now is about self-love. And it is a life I never imagined. I never thought I could be this happy. I never thought that I could be worth this much to myself. Because um, I was the girl, you know, that ate off the floor of the hotel. I wasn't the girl, you know, that took care of herself. Um, what it's like now is I've learned on many levels how to treat myself as someone I love and respect. 
You know, and the first thing that that begins with is to realize that taking care of myself is not an afterthought anymore. It's the number one priority in my life, um, without exception. And I don't do that perfectly either, but I know it's my priority. Otherwise, I'm going to eat and I'm going to die. And I sound like the dramatic girl up here, and I am dramatic because I know where the food takes me. Um, but what it's like now is I take care of myself, you know, on very basic levels, you know, that I used to not do before OA. I bathe every day. I didn't do that before. Um, I sleep every night. I used to pull a lot of all-nighters. Um, and I give myself access to absolute food. And I never used to do that before OA. Um, the second thing is I take my daily medicine on call. You know, I have a food plan. I commit that to my sponsor. I've done three things and three tools by age 15. That's a pretty good start. You know, and I work a program of steps and service, and, and I sponsor. And that's my daily medicine and giving myself the three abstinent meals. But there's a thing, like, on a weekly level that I do, which I think is, like, the most loving thing I've ever done for myself. And it's really new for me since coming to OA. It's I go grocery shopping, you know. And I never went grocery shopping before. And the interesting thing is I could maintain 250 pounds from convenience store items. You know what I mean? But I never went to the grocery store because that was not where I was allowed to be in my mind. I thought everyone would be looking at my cart, you know. Um, but the most loving thing I can do for myself, the best medicine I can stock my shelves with is abstinence food. So just to wrap up real quickly, um, other levels of recovery. Now, I want my outsides to match my insides now. Um, I like makeup. I like doing my hair. I like having hair products. Um, I like a color besides black, even though I'm wearing black today. <laughs> I love light blue and I love lavender. I had no idea, you know. Everything I owned was black. Well, one, because it made me look thinner, and two, because I could spill and stain all over it, and, you know, I didn't have to wash it that often. Um, but I want my outsides to match my insides. You know, I buy clothes now that fit when I taste them. You know, they're not 20 pounds to lose or 20 pounds to gain. They fit when I buy them and I wash them regularly. I mean, just the basic things that are part of my emotional and spiritual recovery and keep me abstinent. These things, these little small things, which are huge, big deals, keep me abstinent. Um, just, you know, I thought, you know, I'm a fat girl, you know, my whole life I've been one. So I've got the stretch marks, I've got the ridges, I've got the way that my body has decided, you know, I've got, I am a relief map of stretch marks. Let me just tell you that from my head to my feet. And I never really felt particularly sexy in the bedroom because, um, you know, I kind of had this road map and uh, of real stuff on my body. Um, but just another way that, like, I want my outsides to match my insides, you know. I love lavender. I bought myself five pairs of lavender panties, you know. It's small, but it's a big deal because, you know, you may not see them, but I feel good about myself, you know, and I would have never done that before. Um, and I need to wrap up now, but um, a couple other levels. My home, my environment's matching my insides. I actually got my cabinets redone in my kitchen and I'm painting, and I want my home not to look like a warehouse of an eccentric scientist, you know. I want my home to be comfortable and loving and calm. Um, but the last two things... Um, I'm going to try not to get emotional when I talk about them. But, um, you know, I want to talk about, you know, living my life um, abstinently and with a higher power, you know, what that means to the other people in my life. And I had no idea that this was going to be part of my recovery. And this simple fact of what I'm going to share with you tells me that, you know, God exists and that this program is not about me. It's about the fact that the program works and that a higher power exists and works. Um, if I do the footwork and show up and be honest about what I'm shoving in my face and doing to myself. Um, I want to talk about my goddaughter, Mia. Mia was born uh, May 15, 2003. 
And, you know, if you told me two and a half years ago that a suicidal, obese addict with no hope would be asked by her very beautiful friend, who's a very devout Catholic, you know, to be one of the spiritual guides for her newborn's life, I would have told you you're smoking crack. <laughs> like, that wasn't going to be me. You know, I was never thought that I lived my life with integrity in a way that someone I love would want me to be a role model or have an influence on the most precious thing in their life because that's how little I thought of myself. But um, I was asked to be me as godmother. And, um, you know, no matter what, around the weight, no matter what happens, you know, I know that miracles exist because that was nothing I ever could have hoped for in my life. But I lived my life with an integrity and a self-respect that my friends wanted to have be part of their children's. Um, so now I'm crying and my makeup's running, but thank God this is just being taped in the video. But, um, I'll just close with this. I came across a document before I came to the convention, and I have a very patient and frustrated financial planner who's trying to help me actually, like, prepare for retirement someday. And um, her name is Janice, and she's wonderful. They had me fill out a form that said, you know, what are your life goals? And it's like she works right in our block, so I'm thinking, I want to fully fund retirement. That's all I wrote on the paper. And, um, and she said, oh, come on, Laura. What are your life goals? Some clients want villas in Greece, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you want my life goals? She's like, yeah. I said, they're not financial. And she's like, well, write them down anyway. It really matters. So I wrote them down. You know, and I pulled them up. I was running across them before I came here to convention. And, um, and I wrote five life goals down. You know, and my, my life goal is um, to be happy. And my other life goal is to have serenity. And my other lifelong goal is to know peace. And my other goal is to be of service, to uh, help others, to make a difference in their lives. And um, my final life goal was uh, to be able to love and to be loved in return. And, um, and I pulled this piece of paper out before I came to the convention, knowing that I was going to be speaking. And when I pulled that paper out, I just had this, like, rush of gratitude that come, you know, it came over me because I realized I'm living in my goals. My life that I live today on a daily basis is those five things. I know serenity. I know peace. I am happy. I am of service. And I know how to love and be loved in return. I know how to love myself. And I know how to love others. And they love me back. And so all I can tell you is I'm sober. I'm present. And I'm extraordinarily grateful. Thanks, Laura. That was wonderful. Um, it is now time for sharing on the topic. Since this meeting is being taped, please make sure you sign the release form here to my right after you share. Uh, would those wishing to share please come on up? We've got plenty of time for you all get to share. <laughs> Okay. 
Hi, I'm Sarah, compulsive overeater anorexic. Hi, Sarah. Hi, uh, Laura, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your honesty, and um, I enjoyed hearing your story. Um, it brought up a lot for me. I've, I've been in program about a year and four months, and I've been uh, maintaining an abstinence of, of that length of time. Um, to be honest, uh, it's been a year and four months abstinence from compulsive overeating, and it took me a little while longer to be willing to admit that I was an anorexic. And um, for me, the way I think about it is that, um, you know, my disease started with anorexia when I was um, about 16 in high school. Um, I'd always felt this thing of, like, self-consciousness and, and just self-hate and fear of people and just always walking around so uncomfortable and in anxiety that um, I was always just so mean to myself, picking on myself. And if it wasn't my skin or my looks or, you know, whatever, one day, you know, I just decided, um, you know what, I need to lose some weight. And I was like um, 110 pounds. And so that's how it started. Um, and um, I started just making these real small meals like at lunch in front of people where it would be a couple of crackers and a couple of grapes. And, and um, one day I eventually snapped and, and just went the other way and started eating and eating and eating, and I couldn't stop. And in a very short period of time I gained 30 pounds, which was just horrific for me because I'd always been so skinny, so scrawny, and then suddenly I had to uh, buy new clothes and I was wearing big things to cover up and just feeling so awful and I couldn't stop. And um, and so when I, um, I was about 16, I was in counseling and my uh, counselor referred me to OA and somehow I called. Um, I looked it up in the phone book. I called. I got to a meeting, but I wasn't willing. I didn't think I belonged there. Um, a lot of people sort of would ask me, uh, what are you doing here? You know, are you bulimic or anorexic? And um, I just, uh, I didn't know either. So I just left and it took, I went out there for like eight years and um, I completely forgot about OA and I just, um, I don't even know how I got through college and, and all that stuff because I was just the same. Like I was emotionally stalled for all those years. And then thank God uh, about, you know, a year, four months ago, um, I was on absolute bottom, and I was starting to overeat again, and it was getting scary, and I said out loud one day that I needed some help, um, and then a friend happened to um, have the big book you know, on her kitchen table, and she'd always talk about these meetings, and so it just progressed from there. And um, once I cleaned up my food with the compulsive overeating and uh, the binging and, and all that stuff, um, it was like that... that anorexia that was hiding underneath was finally exposed, you know, where it initially began, and I really got to see it, and it, it got really ugly before I was willing to do anything, where my health was really suffering, and I probably scared the crap out of everybody um, except myself, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> sometimes I don't even really realize how scary it got, um, but um, thankfully today, you know, my life is... Um, completely different I just the way I share about it is you know I've never felt this way before it's like being in love you know but just being in love with life and um, I, I feel extremely grateful um, you know I I so excited like last night I was so excited and also worrying about things but mainly more excited that I can't sleep you know I'm so excited for the next day and before I, I couldn't even get out of bed um, you know, I, I take action on things, and I don't necessarily want to, but um, I do them because, you know, I don't want to coast. You know, I want to keep going forward and just um, doing those daily things that I do, like talking to my sponsor, 
um, writing, reading, making outreach calls, just, you know, a, a million things. Um, so I'm just really grateful to be here. Thanks for letting me share. Hi, I also hate to let the people pay for tapes have 20 minutes of silence, so I guess I should share. Um, I, you know, we, we don't have many women's SAG meetings in Sacramento. I think we've just started one recently, and I don't think I've ever been to it, so kind of an interesting concept for me, and, and I always appreciate with the, the men when they show up and share because they're so outnumbered, so kind of an interesting idea. But, Laura, thank you. I hadn't heard... Uh, your story before, and I appreciated it. I've met Laura once before, but uh, um, that was a very powerful share, and it meant a lot to me. Um, what's going on in my life today is uh, I'm about to get married in two months to a person in this program, and uh, I guess in thinking about the five principles that Laura shared, the thing that has been and has been on my mind recently in our relationship is. Uh, you know, honesty and openness in our communication has been there from the beginning. Um, and it sure makes a relationship challenging when you have that level of honesty and openness. Um, you can't play games and, and learning to communicate directly what I need and what I want. And I never knew what a manipulator I was um, and how dishonest. I mean, I, I've learned I was dishonest in this disease, but I, um, in my work, I... Uh, work with teams, and so trying to get people to form consensus is a skill that I have. It doesn't work well in a relationship to try to get him to agree to what I want him to do when I haven't told him what that is, and, uh, and I'm trying to get his consensus. So would you like to go to the store tomorrow and, and do this? And, and he's now learned to translate that, that into, Mario wants to go here tomorrow. So, um, and I've had the, and, and we talk about stuff like that. And so we've learned that, you know, I need to share. I want to do X. Do you want to come along or not? Um, clear communication. What a concept. Uh, so that's just one level of honesty, I guess, that, that I am continuously challenged by in this program. Uh, I've been challenged by my food in this program, um, and, and in a relationship I've had people, other couples in recovery have said, you know, you don't have to gain 20 pounds just because you're in a relationship, and I, that hadn't occurred to me either, um, because I find that the things I tend to eat over is the stuff that the relationship brings up. I mean, man, why did he do that? I'm so annoyed. You know, got the other. And... Uh, or just my stuff, you know, with work and, and other things that are, are very stressful right now. Um, today I'm, I'm striving for acceptance. Uh, I went to the body image workshop this morning, and, and that's always an issue for me. How do you be in a relationship? I didn't think it was possible. This is to show you why I am, because I was a fat girl too. I didn't think it was possible, because of my experience in high school, for a nice guy to like me for who I was as a fat person. It just didn't happen. The boys didn't like fat girls in the school I went to. They didn't get dates. Um, and, it, and so I had lost some weight in college and started to date. Uh, I went to graduate school, and I dated. And uh, 
it's probably more appropriate to say slept around, um, because I thought that if I did that, then they would like me in return, and therefore we would develop a relationship, and it would all work out, and we'd have the white picket fence and all the other stuff. Um, I don't know where I get these ideas. I, I think as with growing up, watching fathers knows best is my idea of what an appropriate adult relationship was. I mean, I'm so unskilled in social relationships, in interpersonal relationships, in intimate relationships, in every relationship my, with my work. And, and it always brings me back to the, what I read in the big book, which I had no concept of until I came into OA. And that's on page 60 and 61, if you want to know. It's the chapter how it works. And it's the, you know, we, we act out and uh, we're either too nice, gracious, or we are the opposite and people retaliate. I had no concept of why people kept crapping on me. And I thought I was such a nice, wonderful, smart, you know, person and I would get treated this way. And I couldn't figure it out. And I read that and I said, oh, then I had to learn about my part in things. And, and you know, that's when I really think the emotional and spiritual growth started to happen. So I guess I want to share that, you know, I'm a work in process. Uh, everybody I know in this program is a work in progress. And, and the key, one of my favorite sayings in this program is progress and not perfection. I thought I had to do it perfectly. I didn't know there was any other way to do it, except I wasn't getting there, so that was frustrating. And now I wanted to accept, okay, so my food hasn't been perfect. I had lost at one point my highest uh, I lost 85 pounds. I'm still 60 pounds down from my top weight, which is the best I have ever done on any diet anywhere. But I don't think it's good enough because I've gained 20 of that 85 back. Um, I don't think it's good enough because I'm going into a wedding that's going to be broadcast over the Internet, for God's sake, and I'm not going to be a size 10. And, and I want to be in two months a size 10. And, you know, and I know that I can't diet because that's something I had to give up when I worked step one. Diets don't work for me. Okay, so how do I do that? I work my food plan, and I call my sponsor, and I read my literature, and I go to meetings, and I do all the stuff I've learned here, and, you know, so what if I'm not? Because the people who are going to be there, my family, they're going to love me whatever weight I am. And the fact that my fiancé loves me at the weight I am uh, now, before, and later, you know, is just something, a, a concept that uh, uh, at first I could not accept, and I've had to learn to accept it. Thank God for him. Thank God we have this program. So I'm just really grateful to be here and uh, grateful that we have tools that show us how to live. And I don't know how the rest of the world who doesn't have a 12-step program manages it because I sure didn't get it. And I always think that, you know, where was I? Just for Jewish, you know, how do people know how to do this, the normies? How do they learn that? And it's kind of like, where was I, where was I on the day they talked Because I never got it. And I still don't. But, uh, you know, I'm getting better. And I have the people in this program who model for me what appropriate adult behavior looks like. <laughs> now, what is it like to be in the world and to be present and, um, and to screw up and be able to admit it. And, uh, um, and life goes on. And so that's my, that's my share for today. And um, I'm going to make one more offer. Anybody else? They're here for you? Okay. So if there is no more, I do need you to be sure to sign the release, please, before you leave. So it's now time to close. People on the tape, sorry about that. Um, please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Form a circle? Yeah. You comfortable doing that?
to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the wisdom. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. That was wonderful.